Jeremy Bentham was a philosopher and was considered the founder of utilitarianism, which is sometimes called the greatest happiness principle. He's a pretty interesting fellow during his life and even at his death. You see, he was very generous, notoriously so. When he died, he left a bunch of money to a London hospital. But it had some strings attached. Really, there was just one condition. You see, Bentham insisted that he would have to be present at every board meeting in order for the hospital to make use of his donation. And so, for over 100 years, the remains of Jeremy Bentham were wheeled into the boardroom every month, placed at the head of the table, outfitted with the appropriate 17th century garb, and there was a nice little hat placed upon the wax head that was made to sit atop his skeleton for just this occasion. And the, media, the minutes of the board meeting, every time, they were sure to include one final line. Mr. Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. Despite the rather humorous display of his philosophy, the reality was that Mr. Bentham was dead. We come once again this morning to Ephesians chapter 2, and what we discover in the first few verses is that apart from Christ, all of us are just as spiritually dead as Mr. Bentham, and will remain so unless God does a supernatural work in us. This is a bedrock passage, these 10 verses in the chapter 2 of Ephesians, and we have decided to walk through them very slowly, and we've kind of framed our sermons around questions. Ultimately, the big idea of the passage is made explicit in verses 8 and 9, but by grace you have been saved in this, not of yourselves, the gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. And so Paul is making the assertion that Christians are saved by God's grace. And so we, we kind of asked questions about what our salvation means. And so we've said, well, what do we need saved from? And the one word answer a few weeks ago was wrath. And then last week, we asked the question, why? Has God saved us? And we answered, because of the great love with which he loved us. God's love motivated him to save his people. And so last week we meditated upon the wonderful truth that God has a special and unique love for Christians, for all who profess faith in Christ. We marveled at the fact that when Jesus died, he knew that he was dying for his bride. He poured out his blood knowing he would get what he purchased. You and me and all who will put their faith in him. This week we're going to ask the question, what is given in salvation? And the answer in one word is life. We're going to talk about the implications of that and our union with Christ. 
And then next week we will deal with the question of how. How did God accomplish all of this? And we'll answer in a word, grace. So with that that kind of framework in mind, we we come uh, to verses 5 through 7 primarily this morning. And the main idea, the thing I want you to grasp a hold of and walk away pondering this week is that God has united his people with Christ. Christians are united with Jesus. And in light of that, we ought to rest in Christ, rule over our sin in Christ, and rejoice in what is to come in Christ. You see those propositions that we've structured our sermon around there in your outline, and we will come to each in turn. But first, let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to gather together in the name of Christ to give you glory and honor and praise. You are worthy of all of our adoration. As we come together this morning, Lord, we pray that we would recognize the truth that together we have been united to Jesus to the extent that he calls us his body. We pray that as the body of Christ, we would do the work of encouraging one another, of lifting each other's chins up so that our eyes might behold more of your beauty. Lord, help us to see Jesus. Help us to love you more. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so Paul lays out for us our predicament, which we have considered the last couple weeks. And our predicament is this. We, apart from Christ, are dead. Disciples of Satan, doomed for eternal wrath. We're dead. No heartbeat, no breath in our lungs, flatlined, dead. 
And as we have noted, this pulls the rug out from underneath some of those trite cliches you hear sometimes, such as, God helps those who help themselves. Benjamin Franklin was wrong. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God saves dead people. We also noted how this is problematic for some very popular illustrations, uh, one of which was, uh, you know, the, the man, you've heard it, the, the man is drowning in the ocean, wave after wave crash upon him, his, his lungs are filling up with water, he's about to drown, but there's a boat there, and that's where God is, and he throws out to the drowning man a life preserver, you know, with Tom Brady-like accuracy. And all the man has to do is close hand upon that life preserver, and he will be saved. And so the illustration goes, you're like the man that's, that's drowning, and you need to put your faith in Christ, and you decide. Your salvation is up to you. That illustration is patently false according to what Paul tells us here. Our state before God is not tantamount to drowning, but to being dead. In order for us to be saved from the wrath of God that we are owed, God must bring us to life. God is the initiator here. In order for us to believe, and you should believe, if you're here and you're a non-Christian, I implore you to repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ. But in order for that to happen, an antecedent work of God's Holy Spirit has to happen in the heart. He takes from us a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh because naturally we are children of wrath. Naturally, we cast off God's authority and assert our own authority. Quite naturally, we are doomed to an eternity under his wrath and we deserve it because we follow the passions of our flesh. We follow our hearts and we act in a way that is rebellious against God. You see, humanity's problem is not that we are simply lost and in need of direction. Our problem is not that we are simply weak and in need of strength. Nor is it that we are simply confused and in need of instruction. It's not that we are unhappy and in need of joy. The root of our problem is that we are dead and in need of life. Our problem is that in our deadness, we have acted in a way that is treasonous against the God who created us. Our sin is cosmic treason. And the right punishment for cosmic treason is God's wrath. God's wrath is the right expression of his holiness towards evil. Right? If God is just, he will deal with evil. He will punish evil. And he will. And so we are owed death. At the end of the day, the Bible tells us, if we want to believe the Bible, we have to recognize that evil is not simply something we choose. It is bound up in what we are. The world we live in and the devil we follow. We deserve God's wrath. 
And if you don't get this, you won't understand how glorious the gospel is. If we don't come to grips with the fact that God owes us nothing more than his righteous wrath throughout eternity, then we won't feel the force of verse 4. These first three verses are the black cloth that the diamond of the gospel is set atop of. We are owed death. And then we read, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is miraculous. If you are a Christian, it's not because you did anything. It's because God saved you. In the same way that Jesus looked at the tomb of Lazarus when Lazarus had been dead for four days, and as the King James says, his body stinketh. Right? He's supposed to be rotting. Jesus says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus gets up and comes out of the grave alive. This is what God has done to you, Christian. He has spoken to you his word. The gospel came to you and the Holy Spirit did a life-creating work in you and you believed. Titus talks about it this way. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What Titus is pointing us to there, or Paul is pointing us to in Titus, what he's showing us is that God brings dead people to life. And he does this by the regenerating work of his Holy Spirit. And so if you've ever heard a Christian talk about being born again, this is what they mean. Jesus has that conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says, you must be born again. Nicodemus is very confused. Basically, how can a man make himself be born again? And Jesus says, the wind blows where it wants. And his point is, God is the one who makes people come to life. But think about it. You didn't cause your own birth. It just happened to you. You didn't choose it. Likewise, when God gives the new birth, he's giving you new life. You see, what happens when, when you are made alive to God, when you get that new heart, you love God. You choose to put your faith in Christ. Really, the the whole picture is very similar to our scripture reading this morning in Ezekiel chapter 37, is it not? We're dead. 
We're, we're like a bunch of dry bones scattered across a valley, gathering dust. And then God's word comes to us. Remember earlier, it was the word breath you saw earlier, over and over again. In Hebrew, the word for breath is ruach, which is the same word for spirit. And what happens in Ezekiel is the Spirit of God, the breath of God, comes to these dry bones at the preaching of Ezekiel. And those bones come to life. Aren't we like that? God speaks to us and He brings us to life. He puts flesh on our bones, blood in our veins, electricity in our hearts and light in our eyes so that we can see and savor who Christ is. He causes the blind to see and the deaf to hear. God makes dead people come to life. That's the miracle. Christians are made alive to God with Christ by virtue of our union with Christ. So again, this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I I exhort you to believe. Put your faith in Jesus and come alive to God. And Christian, I encourage you to share the gospel. God's word, together with God's spirit, brings dead people to life. Faith comes from hearing, Romans 10, 17 tells us. Share the gospel. It works. God is still in the business of bringing dead people to life. Christians are made alive with Christ. You see that in verse 5. It happens even when we are dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. It's really interesting that Paul puts the believer's spiritual resurrection in conjunction with Jesus' physical resurrection. So as Jesus was raised bodily, we will be are raised spiritually. And we have the certain hope that we too will be raised bodily in the future. There is that already and not yet tension to the Christian life. We saw it back in chapter 1, right? In verse 11, we see that we have obtained the inheritance that God has promised to us. And then in verse 14, we read, well, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And so in one sense, we have our inheritance. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then there's another sense where we don't have it yet in its fullness. We have the same kind of um, idea going on in in chapter 1. We're chosen for for adoption. We're adopted in Christ. And then you read Paul in Romans 8, and he says, We groan together with creation, longing for our adoption. There's already in a not yet to it, but, but what Paul is saying here is surprising to us because he's saying that we are already raised with Christ. If you're a Christian, there is a 
mysterious and real sense in which you are already raised with Christ. Paul uses similar imagery to try to explain our, our union with Jesus in Romans 6. I read to you verses 3 through 5. He says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so, the picture we get, you're made alive to God. When you're made alive to God and you put your faith in Christ, one of the first acts of obedience you take is into the waters of baptism. And what's happening in baptism is you are identifying with Jesus. You are confessing him as Lord. And the church, the person that's baptizing you, they, they put you down underneath the water into a watery grave as Jesus was in the grave. And then they pull you up out of the water. You're raised out of the grave in the same way that Jesus was raised out of the grave. Your union with Jesus is being dramatized in your baptism. And what, what's being communicated in that baptism is that when you were made alive to God, when you put your faith in Christ, you changed. Jesus' death, well, it was credited to you. And Jesus' life was credited to you. When Jesus died, you died. Because Jesus lives, you live. See what this means? It means that your sins are forgiven. Not because God has swept them under the rug and shrugged his shoulders. Your sins can be forgiven because when Jesus died on Calvary's hill, he was dying for your sins. That means the punishment due your sins was poured out on Christ. The debt owed by your sins was paid by Jesus' blood. That means you are free from any wrath that God would owe you for your sins. For God to pour wrath out on the Christian for their sins would be for God to be unjust. He's not going to punish the same sin twice. So Christian, all your sins, past, present, and future, were imputed to Jesus, credited to Jesus' accounts at Calvary. They've been paid for. Jesus died for your sins. His death is your death. And his life is your life. See, God also credited to you all of Jesus' righteousness. He that knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means that you have all the favor that God has for Jesus Christ. You have. You share it. God is pleased with you. So often we, we miss this part of the gospel. 
It's not just coming like you owed God a huge debt and then he brings you back to zero. It's that he put an infinite amount of credit into your account. Friends, when we are made alive to God, our faith is in Christ. He doesn't just give us a clean slate. He gives us Jesus' slate. He doesn't give us a new beginning. He gives us the life of Christ. God doesn't give you a clean slate and say, now get to work. He gives you Jesus' slate and says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the gospel. That's the scandal of it. Jesus takes what we deserve and we get what he deserves. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Dear ones, God has created a union between you and Jesus. So close, so intimate, so vital that what happened to Jesus can also be said to have happened to you. Jesus died and you died. Jesus was raised from the dead and you were raised spiritually to walk in the newness of life. And you will be raised bodily when he returns to make all things new. Christians are made alive to God with Christ. Our union with Christ is how we're made alive to God. Our union with Christ means that we are raised up with Christ. And it means that we are seated with Christ. Look again, we're going to start at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. But by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What? This seems bizarre, does it not? But this is precisely what Paul is telling us. And I think that the closest I can get to any kind of illustration or analogy that speaks to our union with Christ is one that Paul provides for us in Ephesians 5. He says this, verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Because no one, who ever, no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. See, just as a husband and wife are made one in a supernatural act of God, so too is Jesus made one with his people. You have been united to Christ, made alive to God, 
raised up with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places. In some mysterious sense, the reality of your situation is that you're two places at once. You're here and you're also raised and seated with Christ. There's a progression here in the text. This is the the apex of it. Seated with Christ in heavenly places. This has implications. It has implications. And I think the Ephesians would have caught this a little bit more immediately than we do because they were very tuned in to the unseen realm. Remember, they're very conscientious of magic and the occult and of spiritual beings. Remember, we looked back uh, in Ephesus, which is featured in Acts chapter 19, and there are the, the seven sons of Sceva are there. And they're, ex- they're Jewish exorcists, and they kind of have a business. They go, they, they cast out demons, and people pay the money. They, they, maybe they're famous, I think. That's the idea. They're the seven sons of Sceva. Okay, and they hear about Paul's ministry and Paul's message. And God is working through Paul in extraordinary ways, right? Like handkerchiefs that Paul has used are being carried to people. They're like, hey, Paul blew his nose on this. Just rub it on yourself. You're going to be made well. And it's working, right? And so they, they hear that Paul preaches Jesus, and they say, all right, we're going to work Jesus' name, because there's power in names. We're going to use Jesus' name in our incantations. And so they, they come to a group of people that are overwhelmed by uh, a, an evil spirit, and they say, by Paul's Christ, I command you to come out. And the demon, remember, says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize but who are you? And then proceeds to beat the seven sons of Sceva bloody and send them running away naked. You know, we read that text and we're like, wow, this is, this is an interesting section of the Bible. And it is. But the result of all of that is given to us in verse 17 of Acts chapter 19. We read, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So you see, in Ephesus, again, there's a culture that that is saturated with spiritual things. And some of those who had become Christians had held on to their spell books or using some old incantations and magics. And when this event unfolds, they realize that Jesus' name is honored even in the spiritual realm. They understand that Jesus is supreme above every being in every realm. And so they recognize, I don't need my old life anymore. Those old things that I used to rely on, well, they can burn because they're worthless. I can depend on the power of Jesus Christ to protect me from every spiritual being. 
when Paul tells us that we are seated with Christ, he's communicating that by virtue of our union with Christ, we share in the authority of Christ. That means that we are not subject to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, or the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We're no longer subject to the passions of our flesh. And don't miss this. Paul, by using this language, saying we are raised up and seated with Christ, he wants to communicate all of that, and he wants us to know that his prayer that he prayed in chapter 1 is being answered. Look back at verse 16 in chapter 1. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, listen, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so what is the power of God toward us who believe? Well, it's the power that raised Jesus up from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God. And you go, well, how is this at work in my life? And Paul says, let me tell you how it's at work in your life. You were dead, but God made you alive. And he raised you up with Christ and he seated you with Christ. This is how the power of God has been at work in you. He has made you alive to himself. Isn't it miraculous? Friends, by virtue of our union with Christ, believers have not only authority over our spiritual enemies, but it means we can receive divine empowerment from the Holy Spirit of God who resides in us that we might conquer our sins and the passions of our flesh. This movement is in, it's indescribable. We are moved by virtue of our union with Christ from death to life, from chains to crowns, from following Satan to following the Spirit, from disobedience to obedience, from loving sin to loving God, from being children of wrath to being children of God. Friends, this is a complete reversal of our condition before God. God takes treasonous rebels and makes us sons and daughters. Like think, think about this for a second. The Holy Spirit, Christian, has united you to Jesus in such a way that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. That's good news. Therefore, 
rest in your salvation. Rest. Know who God has made you in Christ. This means that you don't have to put your sweatband on and, and get on the metaphorical treadmill of good works trying to prove yourself worthy of God. You're not worthy. But Jesus is. And you're united to Him. That means you can have joy as you go about your day trying to give loving obedience to the God who has loved you. Your salvation is not in question. Your position in God's heart and in His family is not in danger. God will cease to be pleased with you when He ceases to be pleased with Christ. That's what your union means. It also means that you can rule over those things which threaten your spiritual progress. It means that you are no longer subject to Satan and demons and spiritual beings. You don't have to fear that anymore. It means that you can actually rule over your sins. That doesn't, not to say that it's easy to conquer all of your sins. It is to say, but because of God's work in you, it's a possibility. As you depend on the Holy Spirit, you will become and practice what you've been declared in Christ, which is holy. You do not need to submit to the yoke of slavery. You have been united to Christ. And you have the power of the Holy Spirit so that you might fight against your sin. This means you can put to death whatever is earthly in you. Paul wants us to know that we've been made alive with Christ, raised up with Christ, and seated with Christ. He says, well, why did God do any of this? We answered, verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us. But verse 7 gives us a second reason why God has saved us. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. God purposes to make the church the amphitheater in which he demonstrates his loving kindness forever. God, it's kind of, this is not a great illustration, but it's as if God came to a kindergarten class and he said, today, I'm going, it's show and tell, I'm going to do some show and tell, and I'm going to tell you about my kindness. And so to teach everybody about his kindness, what he shows them is the church. The church that he's redeemed. He speaks of redemption. This is the, this is the picture. God has been so kind to us in the gospel. He's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he's going to continue to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus in the coming ages, throughout eternity. God is going to continue to be more and more kind to us. That's incredible. He's going to show all of creation his kindness 
by pouring that kindness out onto you and I. I had one, listen to one pastor who, thinking about this particular verse, commented, you know, I don't know what age after age looks like, but maybe each age has its own character. And he says, I, I can't wait for the age of hunting. He says, this is a thousand years of deer season. You know, can, can you imagine? I think perhaps more, I don't know, maybe there, is, there will be an age of deer season and we'll all learn to like it, I don't know. But I think more readily of the marriage supper of the Lamb as an age in which we eat and drink to Jesus' victory. You ever think about heaven, what it's going to be like? Not Tom and Jerry up on a cloud. It's going to be an adventure. I'm going to see Jesus starting it, having like a, a champagne bottle. It's going to be a party. I think that's one of the greatest misnomers, right? Heaven is where joy is. Heaven is where the party's at. Hell is where there is no party. Friends, we are looking forward to an eternity with God where the wine never runs out. The music never goes dull. Each chapter is better than the one before it. And all of it is to the praise of God's glorious grace as he continues to pour out more and more of his kindness to us. He does this because of our union with Christ. It's all his work. He's made us alive to himself. None of us can boast. All we can do is praise him and give him glory and say, thank you. Friends, your union with Christ means you can rejoice in what is to come throughout eternity. Praise God. He has united his people with Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing privilege it is to call you Father and to pray to you. So often we do this presumptuously without recognizing what an incredible gift it is. We thank you for forgiving our sin by punishing it in Christ. We thank you for making us right with yourself, pleasing in your sight, by virtue of our union with Christ. Lord, how marvelous, how wonderful is your great love with which you have loved us. We thank you that though we were dead, you have made us alive. Oh my. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.